Today's episode is proudly sponsored by Pixis, the PTSA experts. Nation, I have been using PTSA for years. And as you know, when you use PTSA, you have to use a meter that you can depend on. Well, right out of the box, I used my Pixis meter and I found it was superior to other meters that I have tried at a price that made it easy for me to outfit everybody within my company with a Pixis meter. Now, when you measure PTSA, you need to make sure that you are accurate so you do not underfeed or overfeed. Pixis meters compensate for turbidity and color, ensuring that you get the most accurate results. Pixis offers top-of-the-line handheld and inline sensors, as well as tracer products and calibration standard solutions. Visit Pixis today by going to scalinguph2o.com forward slash Pixis, that's P-Y-X-I-S. Welcome to Scaling Up H2O, the podcast where we scale up on our knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. I'm Trace Blackmore, the host of Scaling Up H2O. And folks, one of the things I want to do with this podcast is make it so when you tune in each and every week that you know what is coming up in the water treatment community. So I'm going to try my best when I know of items that are approaching that I let you know so you can get them on your calendar or at the very least go to our show notes page at scalinguph2o.com and figure out if that is something that you want to attend. I will always have the links directly to the conferences on my show notes page. I know so many people are driving when they're listening to this podcast, so please don't take your eyes off the road to make a note. We're going to make sure that we have that information that you need on our show notes page. All you have to do, again, is go to scalinguph2o.com. So coming up is one of the most popular regional conferences in the United States. It's the Texas 2021 Virtual Convention. Now, normally they don't do it virtually, but because of all the things that are going on, that's kind of the new norm until we figure out what the next new norm is. That's going to be March 29th through April 1st. Folks, there's over 130 presenters at this conference. They peer review these. These are really interesting papers. And here's the cool thing. Whenever I go to a conference, I can only attend one of the presentations. And if they have over 130, that means they're going to have a bunch that overlap each other. Well, on the virtual environment, I know we much rather be there in person, but on the virtual environment, I can see every single presentation on my time. So it's on demand. That means you can attend them all. And folks, I just love going to conferences, virtual conferences. I know they're working on ways to make sure networking is a part of it. You know, one of the ways we worked with AWT last year was we did the after hours hang and we had hundreds of people on every night where we were talking in virtual chat rooms. And, and that's okay. And I had a lot of fun putting that on. So much fun. We continue to put that on on a regular basis. 
In fact, the next hang is going to be on April 8th at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So plenty of time to register for that if you are interested. So obviously, networking is something that's very important to do when you go to one of these conferences. You know, I have a certain checklist that I look at whether I should go to a conference or not. Normally, I'll look at the presentations that they are doing. And I got to tell you, it's really hard to look at presentations and find presentations that you're going to say, nope, that's not going to move the needle on me getting better at what I do. So the simple choice is, is you've got to decide if this is something you're going to invest some time in whenever you go to one of these conferences. You know, I always look at it to in addition to all the things we've talked about so far, you are going to meet new people. Now, I know it's different on virtual conferences than in-person conferences, but still, you're going to meet new people, especially if you make a target, a goal around meeting new people. You're going to touch base with people that you know. How cool is that? You learn that you have a common interest with somebody at one of these conferences, and then you get to see them the next year, and now they're one of your friends. So definitely touching base with those people is always a reason that I like going to these conferences. Learning more about what you know. So when you're sitting in those papers, you have a base knowledge. Now you're going to increase that base knowledge and or you're going to look at what you already know in a different way. Maybe there's another way of explaining how you've been explaining something to a customer, and that is the key to getting them to make that valuable decision that you just haven't been able to get them to make. You never know what you're going to pick up. Now, here's the big one, and this is why I love surrounding myself with other people and putting myself in situations like conferences where I am forced with all this information to learn new things. Because folks, we don't know what we don't know, and this allows us a peek into what do we not know we don't know. Now we have some references, We can do something with it. We can start to learn. And folks, at these conferences, we can find people that are in the same boat as we are, and we can actually use each other as accountability partners to make sure that we're learning. And maybe we're using each other to find new information about how we're going to learn that so we don't have to do it alone. So many great things about putting yourself in one of these conferences. And of course, as always, you get to talk with your peers and you get to see where your market is. What's going on in the climate of today? What is the next new thing that you need to know about? What's working today that necessarily is not going to work tomorrow? What do you have to know so you can pivot so you are ready for whatever changes are on the horizon. Now, if you go to one of these conferences, you're probably going to find a presentation about AI. Yes, AI, artificial intelligence. And that's actually what our show is about today. Our guest today is Neil Sahota, and he's going to talk all things about AI. 
My lab partner today is Neil Sahota, IBM Master Inventor and United Nations AI Subject Matter Expert. How are you, Neil? Doing well, Trace. How are you doing? I'm doing great. You and I are coming at each other from two different sides of the country. You're in California. I'm in Georgia, but we're making it work. Hey, that's the beauty of technology in the digital age. That is exactly right. Neil, you are a very impressive individual. I'm hoping you tell the Scaling Up Nation a little bit about yourself. Sure. I uh, started my career as a uh, management consultant helping global Fortune 500 companies, like with their business strategy, you know, developing new product services. And I've always just been the kind of guy that likes to solve problems and not just like the problem at hand, but more generally. So I want to develop a lot of intellectual property like patents and stuff. And uh, one day I got a knock on the door from IBM R&D asking me about some of my work. And uh, they said, like, you, you help us solve some problems. You want to come on board what was back then codenamed Watson. And so I wound up being part of like the original uh, Watson team. And that actually started my whole foray into artificial intelligence. So I got to ask, you're a master inventor. So what's the difference between an inventor and a master inventor? Master inventor is a special designation IBM gave to just a handful of people where they basically created billions of dollars worth of value to the company. And in exchange, you get this nice title and a whole bunch of extra work. <laughs> <laughs> got it. Well, your specialty is AI. And I know there's a lot of people listening today that might have different definitions for AI. How would you define AI? That's a good question, Trace, because uh, there's also a lot of hype out there. And essentially, AI is a machine that can mimic human thinking to do uh, low-level type of tasks that re require some level of cognition, meaning that the, the machine's not given like a, a decision tree or a path, but using like lots and lots of data. Uh, it looks for patterns of the data on, by itself. We give it something called the ground truth, which is rules on how to make decisions. And so the machine learns by reviewing data, by trying things through experience, through understanding natural language. So context, jargon, slang is not an issue. It's not about keywords. So think of it as like an AI is like a three-year-old kid and you want to teach the three-year-old something new, right? You don't just say, you know, what's good versus bad behavior. You don't list out both things. You give the child a few guidelines and then the child figures out by experience, learning. And that's exactly the same thing with the machine, except for the machine, it goes from three-year-old to PhD in just a few weeks. Now, I can't help but think about the 1980s movie War Games when you were giving me that definition. Have you seen the movie? I have. Fantastic movie. All right. So I think the machine's name was Joshua. It was playing chess and then it was trying to blow up the world. <laughs> that That is true. <laughs> that, I also, it's very, also a very Hollywood type of thing because there's always that human versus machine element. But AI, machines, technology in general is just a tool. And it's all about how we choose to use it, right? And if you remember in war games, they let the machine play the game without the missiles and it learned there was no way to win. And they were up coming back and saying, like, why on earth would you ever want to play this? Yeah, but then 20 years later, we developed Skynet, and then the same thing happened. So you just can't win with Hollywood. 
No, 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 no. Maybe one day it'll be a little more optimistic uh, outlook. But uh, it's like you, you and I have to help shape that mindset for that to happen. Well, I know you do some work in the water treatment industry using AI. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I, uh, you know, living in California, water is always a paramount concern out here because we're like in a constant drought situation. And, you know, if I remember correctly, I think I read a report saying there's less fresh water in the world than there is oil. And so it puts a lot of need, I guess I'll put put it that way, on maximizing the use of the water that we have. And so things like how can we recycle water? How can we treat it? How, you know, how can we do a better job of trying to distribute it, mitigate use of loss, even things like the, the use of water for like agriculture, like farmers? Can we still maintain the same level of crops just using less water? So these are all areas where we're actually applying AI into to see if we can get not just better efficiencies, but actually innovate and find new ways of trying to do some of these things. Most of our accounts will have some sort of uh, computer controller attached to it, and it's measuring the content of the water, maybe specific ions, and then it's doing something based on what those readings are. Can that be considered AI? Um, probably not. If it's just following a set of rules and it's looking at thresholds, we don't really call that AI. There's obviously an element of like analytics there. Uh, AI would be more like the machine is actually making decisions. So it might be judging that, like, you know what, the the ionization is off balance or maybe that there's there's too much, like, particles in the water, like there's too much filament or something like that, and it makes a decision on its own to make a change so that it'll improve, like, filtration. Or at least it'll notify a human and say, whoa, whoa, the water here, there's – there's, a little, there's something wrong here. I recommend doing this. So not just giving out an alert, but actually saying, I recommend doing this or actually taking the action. Can you give us an example of how AI is being used today to improve some of the infrastructure we have around the country? Yeah. So one of the big things uh, is leakage. So, you know, as we're distributing water, if I've actually heard even some areas in the U.S., the, the loss could be almost 40%. And, you know, we're, we're always talking about how can we improve that and can we, like, marry AI with IoT? And that's actually what's happening right now is, you know, we're, we're trying to add sensors, but we're trying to identify all the areas where, like, leakage might actually happen, even in very minute, subtle forms of uh, water pressure. And it's not just saying, like, okay, well, this thing dipped over here. The AI is constantly monitoring and trying to figure out what actually might trigger leakages or, you know, even if there's a slight dip, is that, was that like a one-off or is that going to be, is, like a, is, there a, is there a small crack that's going to wind up getting bigger? So imagine if like you could have a person looking at 10 feet of pipe 24-7, right, and see the, the whole pipe during this time and is just laser focused on it to see if there's anything wrong. That's one of the things that's actually going on from an infrastructure side. I'm trying to think as a water treater listening to this podcast, they're probably thinking, what do I need to know about AI? How do I even begin to start utilizing a tool like this in our day-to-day? -day? What would you say to them? I, I would say that I think 
you, sh you should learn a little bit of foundational knowledge. I actually think everyone should. I'm not saying you need to become a technical savant or go take some programming classes. But the interesting thing about AI is that we've unlocked a whole new tool set. There, there's a whole bunch of capabilities that we've never had before. And we're used to machines being like automators, right? It can help us do something faster or cheaper or with less errors. And we have these this new capabilities now where machines can actually do way more than that. And, and this is where we all struggle, whether we're you know water specialists or even a doctor or an accountant, where because we're so taught to think about automation that we don't think about innovation. We don't think about now that I have these extra, I have this new tools, new capabilities, can I actually do this in a, a little bit of a different way that actually might be just be better, you know, rather than improve things kind of find a new way of doing this that will be more efficient for me or may just open up other avenues. If you'll indulge me for a second, Trace, I mean, one good example of this is, you know, we're always talking about the infrastructure around water, but we also learned that we can actually use AI to influence um, consumer behavior on their water consumption. And this isn't just like telling people like, hey, if you take a five-minute shower, you'll save X amount of gallons, blah, blah, blah. But there's actually a whole bunch of AI tools now helping farmers realize, you know what, you could irrigate your crops in a different way. You know, AI is helping help you figure out how to use your water resources more efficiently and actually grow the same amount of crops with like 30, 40 percent less water. And even in more arid areas, it's the same type of thing. You'd suddenly people can actually grow more crops with still less water to, you know, help the local community and so forth, but it's one of those things like we can help on the infrastructure side, we can help with the actual treatment of the water, and we can actually help on the consumption side as well. That's fascinating. How would you go about even getting the data, analyzing when the best time is to water crops, how to water them? How would you even do that? That is a fantastic question, Trace, because data is the fuel for AI. It can't really learn or do anything without it. We've been farming for... 40,000 years, and we've had like the farmer's almanac. We have all these, we actually have an insane amount of data. And especially with IoT, IoT was starting to be deployed for farms, I think back in 2010. And I, you know, those IoT sensors generate so much data. It's really data for machine consumption, not human consumption, that we actually have tons of data. And we can marry, the, you know, we can marry things around the, the weather. The water infrastructure, even things around insects. We, we can even now optimize and say, you know, we don't need 10 gallons of water to grow that almond anymore. That almond really needs, you know, four. Or, you know, this grape really, to grow that one grape really needs only like a liter of water if we do it this way. That's fascinating. I read just recently, you brought up almonds, that almonds are one of the most water using crops that we have in the United States. Mm-hmm. We, we don't, we don't, we don't realize that, right? That's the challenge, right? We don't, we, we don't think of these things. This is why it's like a different mindset. What do you think the next problem out there that AI is destined to solve when it comes to water? I, I really hope, and you know, it's something I'm championing is that can we use AI to find better ways to uh, unlock more water resources. And I'm not saying let's go tap into like all the glaciers in Antarctica. Um, you know, we always talk about like desalinization or even trying to collect like rainwater. 
I think there's actually much better ways to improve our, our capacity and collection of fresh water. You know, I, I live in California and, you know, I live in Southern California and, you know, most people I don't think realize this. Um, the past several years, we've had about one inch of rain, right? And there was, I think it was about two winters ago, we actually had, we call it deluge. You know, we're supposed to average 12 inches of rain. We've been averaging one. And then I think we, a couple of years ago, we had, I think, over 20 inches of rain. And a lot of people were really happy going, yay, you know, we got all this water. And it's like, well, we don't actually collect any of that rainwater, right? We, we don't have any, we, did, we never put any basins or anything like that. We rely on the snowpacks, right? And those snowpacks don't last forever, right? They're eventually going to at least melt, melt partially in the summer. So all this water just rushed off into the, the ocean, right? And, of course, removed all the filth and chemicals and topsoil, which is another story. But it's like, why didn't we build basins, right? Why didn't we think about some of these infrastructure issues? We know our population is still growing. We know, you know, the temperatures have been getting consistently hotter the, the past, you know, 20 years, right? When we knew the rain, this deluge of rain was coming, why weren't we better prepared for it, right? And, and I get part of it is just it's a funding and it's, you know, it's a, a decision, but I think if we, if we had AI tools to help us say, like, you know, by the way, if you had caught this rainwater, um, not only would you guys have been okay, full of reserve for you no know, five years, but you would have saved X millions of dollars, right? Because you wouldn't have to import this water. You wouldn't have to do this. The, the price of water would go down, blah, blah, blah. And I think, I hate to say it this way, it would actually help us kind of build these cases beyond just like, do I have enough water to drink, to have enough water to farm? Years ago, when I visited L.A., I remember somebody told me to turn by the river. There was no river. It was just a big ditch where I guess all that water gets captured and taken back to the ocean. Uh, that's that's the problem. It's funny. If you've ever been to Southern California in particular, um, you'll see all these like waterways, but they're completely dry. And they have been for a couple of decades now. And I've actually had people from out of state tell me, like, why do you have all these things? It's like, normally there's always water flowing, even in the summertime. It just shows you how much things have changed. Well, you wrote a book about AI. Do you mind telling us a little bit about that? Sure. I, I wrote a book. It's called Own the AI Revolution. And I wrote it for non-technical people, uh, particularly like business leaders, like managers and like directors and so forth. Because the one thing I learned, you know, helping build out the, especially this AI ecosystem was, uh, you know, a lot of people were like, okay, what, what is AI? But more importantly, what can I do with it? And if I can figure something out, how do I get started? And working with companies kind of one-on-one -on -one and, you know, tapping into that innovation side of the house, developing that mindset was good, but it wasn't a, a good way to try and reach the masses because I just saw more and more people have the exact same sort of questions. So I wrote this book to actually help answer those questions for people. Because if you're waiting for your smart technologist folks to help you out, I hate to say it, most of them probably can't, right? They just don't know the, the pain points and the day-to-day -day problems on the ground of a water professional or, or a doctor or a lawyer or a social media marketer, right? They just don't know the domain well enough to say, oh, hey, by the way, you can use this technology to do X, Y, Z. So the most innovative like companies, the most 
innovative solutions I've seen have actually come from the water experts or from business or domain experts. And that, I think, is what I really want to try and tap into for people. Because I know there's a lot of fear and concern. And it's like, this is actually an opportunity. And I want people to feel empowered and enabled to actually be a driver for the future. That you actually have the chance to create it, not just hope for the best. Definitely at this day and age, we need all the good that we can get. And I know one of your missions is to reposition AI for social good. How are you doing that? Working with the United Nations, I actually have helped them start an initiative called AI for Good. And the whole point behind it is to use AI and actually other emerging technology to help make the Sustainable Development Goals a reality. And the Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, are 17 goals for a better planet, help for people. It's things like, you know, zero hunger, better access to healthcare, protecting uh, you know, like water and, you know, life and so forth. I won't bore you with all 17. But to do this, we actually have to create a community. And we have to actually bring people together that want to work on solutions and help them kind of match make, you know, even if they want to do small things, right, because small things add up, give them that venue and forum. And the United Nations was definitely the right organization because I hate to say it this way, if one of the big companies like a Google or a Facebook, or even a GE or Procter & Gamble try to do it, people are like, well, what are they getting out of this, right? There must be some money in it for them. And there's really no country out there that was willing to do kind of it on its own or make that kind of investment. And so the UN became a really good platform for this because they, they own those SDGs, essentially. And I'm really proud to say that going from a keynote in front of the assembly where they thought AI was Terminator time to um, such a rapid movement when they realized this could be AI could be used for public service, we uh, in the span of three and a half years have uh, either in progress or completed 116 projects. Wow. Yeah, and that and I think that's fantastic. And what it's really done and helped do is instill this mindset again. So not, not just about how to use AI, but about on social enterprise, social entrepreneurship, where it's perfectly okay to make money. There's nothing wrong with making money, but there might be some opportunities to have a positive social impact at the same time. And we don't teach ourselves to look for both. And this is a great opportunity to actually give people the chance to do that and bring that into the world, to, to actually do both, share it, and inspire other people to do the same. What are some of the things that you do to specifically inspire people to do that? I really believe in the power of storytelling. And so I always try and share my story or other relevant stories so that people hear about the actions that were taken and the outcomes, and hopefully that inspires them to try and do something. Right. You know, you know, a little you know, thing that I actually do is I stopped shaving with any kind of water five years ago. And so I don't, I don't shave every day. And I know you can't see me, but I've always got constant peach fuzz. But I actually did that to help conserve water. And, you know, most people are like, well, how much water are you saving? I'm, I'm saving a gallon a day. And people are like, that doesn't seem like a whole lot, right? You're not really moving the needle, right? I'm like, that's true. But I believe that if you aggregate small things, it makes a difference. And so, you know, if I can inspire 10 people with my story to do the same thing and those people wind up inspiring 10 more people, suddenly we have a million people doing this. And now we're saving a million gallons of water a day. 
And I, I think that's powerful. But that only happens by doing something and sharing that story. That's a great point. You never know where the ripples are going to reach. It's like the water bottle and filling stations, right? I, I, you know, we have a lot, a lot of them like in California and like most of the major airports that I've seen where you, you put your water bottle in there, you know, reusable as you're filling up has that little counter and it shows you how many plastic bottles have been saved. And it's like, you know, me, I, well, I drink a lot of water. Um, I'm probably personally just not making a dent in that, but to see the aggregate, like all the people that have used that filling station and see like, wow, this month we've saved over 2 million plastic bottles. It's huge. Yeah. In addition, it costs about $5 to buy water. In (laughs) (laughs) So you're saving money, saving the planet. It's it's a double win. (laughs) Everybody wins. You do a lot of speaking on culture, and culture is something that we've talked about uh, quite a bit on this show. But I'm curious, what are some of the things that you do to help people develop a world-class culture? That's a, that's a great question. A couple of things I do is beyond the storytelling is I really try to lead by example and, you know, and show that I eat my own dog food, so to speak. I'm not just telling you rah, rah, rah. But the, the third thing is I, I really try and actually speak the language of that person, right? I try and find what are the right motivators or points, whatever you want to call it, that's going to resonate with them, right? And that's one big thing I've learned is that we, we all kind of have different things that we value. And, you know, whereas like one person might really be into facts. Another person might be into fun. Another person might be into value. Another person might be into the economics. And so if you really want to instill this culture, you have to recruit your champions first. And the only way you get your champions is to speak their language and give them the whiff of what's in it for me to inspire them to become the, the, the cheerleaders, so to speak, of their organization to shift the culture. Because changing a culture, whether it's a big change or small change, takes time and a lot of effort. And it's it's funny, culture is one of those ethereal things, Trace, where I think people kind of underscore the value. But we all know that it's really hard to be successful without it. Because if our, our employees, our customers, our partners, whoever it might be, aren't buying in, they're never going to adopt and actually do it. And, you know, I love sports. And it's, it's, I think it's it's just really amazing to see what's going on because – they really got into like the analytics or sabermetrics, all these other things about where to shoot, where to position players for defense, all these things. And now suddenly all these teams are realizing I've kind of optimized as much as I can from uh, a playing standpoint, and I'm not getting the desired outcomes in large part because of the team culture. And now they're looking at things like even AI on figuring out like based on people's personalities and playing styles how do I actually mesh together the most optimal team? And I actually know some companies are doing the same thing now. Like if I'm going to form a project team, how do I put it together, right? It's no longer just about who's the best or right skills. I need people that can work together well and believe in the same goal and want to make that happen. And that's, I think, really how, you know, at least I try to, to move the needle on the culture aspect, but I won't sugarcoat it. It requires a lot of work, but it's well worth it. You know, I I was just thinking as you were speaking, is there any area of life where AI can't get involved and help out in? Um, (laughs) I know that 
from a sector industry standpoint, there's somebody doing something in all of them. But don't get me wrong. There's a lot of things that people do better than machines, than AI. Like, you know, AI can only do what we teach it to do. It's not thinking on its own. It's not trying to learn on its own. And so if there's something that we can't teach AI, then it really can't do it. And, you know, really some big areas there around creativity and imagination. And I, and I think that's, that's something so far I've not seen AI be able to help us do. It's not helping us be more imaginative, more creative, right? It, it just can't even figure out how to teach those concepts. And I actually see that's the, a, a big plus for us in that as you know, machines take on a little bit more of the grunt work, it's freeing our time up to do the more complex work, but also freeing up our time to be more creative, to innovate. You know, you you think about some of those things that you kind of wish you had time to stop and go like, whoa, there's got to be a better way of doing this. We're creating those opportunities for ourselves, and we should really take advantage of that. Well, that makes me feel good. So the machines ultimately cannot take over because they need our imaginative and creativeness. And, and don't worry. You look at something like, you know, the Google Brain or IBM Watson, it's not just sitting there and it's quote unquote downtime wondering like, hey, I'm going to teach myself how to drive or I'm going to teach myself uh, you know, how to play the piano. It, it's it's actually doing nothing. <laughs> you, they're all passive systems. If you don't give it something to do, it, it just does nothing. <laughs> Neil, let me ask, what's the bottom line of your message today? What do you want people to leave this interview with? Well, I, I want them to feel hopeful that it's not a dark, bleak future where machines are going to take all our jobs and rise up and eradicate humanity. Not at all. And I really want people to take away that this is not the realm of just technologists, that, you know, there's the, that was that old uh, saying that the best way to predict the future is to create it. I think we each have an opportunity to actually create that future with AI. We, we each know our space, our pain points really well. And, you know, just understand a little bit about the capabilities. Again, not, not the deep technology behind it, not about neural networks, but just understand a little bit about what AI can do and not do can unlock really great opportunities. It could be for yourself, your family, community, your, your, your business, whoever. But we each have that opportunity. And I really want people to feel empowered, emboldened to actually try and seize that opportunity. Well, now, this has been a fascinating interview. I've learned a lot. I know a lot of people in the Scaling Up Nation are thinking about AI and just what are the capabilities of the future? You know, how can we assign this some data to work on some of the problems that we need to fix? But I do have a couple of questions for you before I let you go. So these are my lightning round questions if you're up for it. Sure. Let's do it, Trace. All right, so you now have the ability to go back in time. There's probably some machine and Terminator we're going to use for that. <laughs> and you're going to see yourself on your very first day as an AI specialist. What advice would you give yourself? Um, <laughs> that, that's a great question. I would probably tell myself that um, definitely don't lose hope, but think about the possibilities. Think about the art of the possible and that – when I started on this path, I was actually very thinking very narrow. You know, we were thinking about how do we win the Jeopardy challenge. And it wasn't until much later after that we realized that there's way more potential. I re I, if I had a chance to go back in time, I'd tell myself, think about that potential. Because I think that we probably could have unlocked a lot more, a lot faster. And we could probably could have managed some of the fears and concerns much better than we initially did. What are the last few books that you've read? 
Uh, great question. Um, last couple of books I've read. So one, actually, I read a book that's not out yet. <laughs> my my friend uh, Brendan Kane wrote a book called uh, Hook Point, which is uh, really fascinating. I think will come out next year. But it's basically how do you get someone's attention in a noisy world? Like you basically have three seconds to capture someone's attention. How do you do that? And I thought that was really fascinating, you know, especially in our go, go, go social media world. I also read a book called Slack, which I thought was fascinating about how we've basically stifled our ability to innovate because we were so uh, essentially obsessed as enterprises to fill every second of our employees' time that we've forgotten the fact that people find better ways to do their job when they have downtime. And we've taken that away. And so we, if we want to be innovative again and create that kind of culture, we have to create downtime for people. So two, two really good books. When Hollywood finds out about you, we know they're going to make a movie about your life story. Who plays you? <laughs> well, if anyone could play me in a movie, I would go with Ryan Gosling because I always joke that, uh, you know, um, when I do like a uh, video interview, when you edit it, just make me look like him. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. That's why I have a podcast. I have that kind of face. <laughs> All right. My final question. You now can talk to anybody throughout history. Who would it be with and why? That's a fantastic question. And I would actually love to go back and have a conversation with Leonardo da Vinci. Right, because he's the quintessential Renaissance man, and a lot of people have actually told me that I'm like a Renaissance man. That I, you know, I'm doing a couple of really big different things, and I would just love to learn how he did he did it. Right, because he was an amazing, you know, painter, artist in general, scientist, you know, writer. How on earth did he do all these things? But more importantly, how was he inspired to do it? Right, did he just have a passion for learning and doing? It would be fantastic to just meet uh, a person that is like kind of like me, but to like the nth degree better. Great answers to all those. Neil, thanks so much for coming on and uh, educating us all a little bit better about AI. And if somebody does want to find out more about you and what you do, what should they do? More happy to chat with anybody. You can always go to my website, neilsoda.com, and there's a contact form. You can uh, connect and follow me on LinkedIn as well as Twitter. And, uh, you know, always see what I'm up to. And I'm always actually publishing articles on Forbes. So a lot of great ways to see what I'm doing or reach out and have a conversation. Well, awesome. Neil, thank you so much for coming on Scaling Up H2O. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Trace. Neil, thanks again for coming on Scaling Up H2O. And when I think of when I started in the water treatment industry, and it was in the 1990s, I remember that that was when the microprocessor controller was the standard. And that was a big change for when my dad started in the industry. And I don't even know when that was. That was probably in the 70s, I would imagine. So with that, my dad wasn't working with any microprocessing control. So what does that mean? That means he was working with limited data. And pretty much everything that he did was done by an individual. 
Well, when I started, we had controls that was using just a small amount of information allowing that information to do something to respond in some way. Well, now if you fast forward to today, all the controls that we are using are smarter. What does that mean? It means that they are gathering so much information and they're able to do things with that information. In fact, on episode 168, we had Jared Gable come on and he talked all things feed pumps and he was talking about artificial intelligence. He was saying that a feed pump can collect data and do things with the data and actually make predetermined decisions based on what that data was. Folks, this is here and it's very exciting because ultimately it means we can do more of what we are valued in doing, which is making sure that we're using water to its fullest potential making sure that we are keeping scale at a minimum, making sure that corrosion is at a minimum, and then dirt and debris, hopefully we're filtering that out, and then finally we're taking care of the microbial. So all the things that plague us when we are working with water, we can use artificial intelligence to help us out with that. Data allows us to make better decisions. We make better decisions when we have better data. When we don't have data, well, folks, we're not making decisions. We're making guesses. So how good are your guesses? Nation, something we do each and every week to make sure that we are getting just a little bit better is James's challenge. So once again, here is another installment of James's challenge. Hello, Scaling Up Nation. It's time for another James's challenge to help you grow as an industrial water treatment professional drop by drop. James's challenge is Test boiler sulfite immediately on a sample. Leave the sample open to the atmosphere and test again an hour later. Will you see a difference in your test reading? Some water tests can wait for hours, days, or weeks to be conducted on a sample with no change. Others need to be analyzed immediately because their numbers may change with time, exposure to the atmosphere, exposure to the sample container, etc. Also, even if you theoretically expect to see a difference or not, Nothing beats actually seeing it with your own two eyes. Be sure to share your experience on LinkedIn by tagging it with hashtag JC21 and hashtag ScalingUpH2O. This is James McDonald, and I look forward to seeing what you share. You know, when I think about what we're doing with our own data, what's the information that we have in our heads? And how do we know that that's relevant? Of course, I started off talking in the intro of this show about going to conferences to make sure that we're always learning. But there's so many other things that we can do. I am a huge fan 
of reading. One of the reasons I love reading because on my time, on my terms, I can read something and I can learn what I don't know I don't know. And most books will tell you what you need to do in order to know what you don't know. Of course, you're the one that has to figure out what it is that you don't know, but most books have action items to tell you exactly what to do. And I love challenging myself to know that I'm pushing myself to the next level. But I'm going to be honest with you. There are certain things that I need help with to get pushed to the next level. And some of those things I need an accountability partner with. Now, an accountability partner is somebody that you can go to and they know where you are and they can also help you get there. But it doesn't have to be one-sided. Normally, it's two-sided. So if there's something that we're both trying to achieve, we can split up the labor on the heavy lifting of all the knowledge that we need to amass in order to get there and then help each other arrive to that destination. That's one of the keys in a mastermind group. And I know you've heard me talk about that on several previous shows when I've talked about the Rising Tide Mastermind. Well, next week, I'm going to interview the mastermind group that I'm personally a member of called Iron Sharpens Iron. And our facilitator, Aaron Walker, is going to be my guest. Now, folks, I truly believe that we need other people to help us see what we don't see and to help us get there and continuously help us get better. So that's why I started the Rising Tide Mastermind, but it's also why I am a member of a mastermind myself. So next week, you're going to hear from Aaron Walker. He's such a fun guest. He's a great facilitator. And you're going to hear many of the reasons why I wanted to start my own mastermind and the man who really encouraged me to start and continue to do the Rising Tide Mastermind. Like I said, he's a really fun guest. I know you're going to enjoy it. Until next week, I would love it if you can try something new Try to learn something new and do something new and be the reason that you make someone else smile. Folks, there's so many things going on out there in the world. I urge you to be the reason that somebody cracks a smile this week. Have a great week, folks. I'll see you next Friday. 